The Oxford English Dictionary defines virtue as a moral quality regarded as good or desirable in a person, such as patience, kindness, etc. Today, we're presented with a list of virtues. If our society remained in, a, in its unbelief but, but lived according to these virtues, our land would be transformed for the better. We can look around and see these good things and we can elevate our thoughts above the mundane things of this world. But the gospel preacher doesn't teach the mere morality of this world. He is rather a preacher of righteousness. So while Paul encourages people to think on these higher things, his real responsibility is to get people to look at Jesus Christ. Because it's in him alone that we see all these virtues exhibited to perfection. So my aim then is to meditate a while on these virtues, think about how they're expressed in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and see how we can let these elevated uh, thoughts direct us to godly behaviour. We have a list before us. It's Paul's list. It's not Peter's or John's. If it was, I expect it would be a bit different. And we shouldn't think it was meant to be a complete list. Most lists in the Bible aren't. Not meant to be. But these rather are examples of what's described just a bit later on as excellent and praiseworthy. You'll notice how it repeats the word whatever. Did you notice that? It's even longer in the King James Bible. It says, whatever things are true, whatever things are honourable, and so on. And I always thought that that's a bit, you know, it's a bit much. He could have, he could have shortened that a bit. You know, Paul could have said, whatever is true, noble, pure. And he could have saved a bit of time. But... <laughs> He's doing this deliberately. It's what sometimes writers do deliberately. He's stretching the thing out more to give us more time to take on board the words, more time to absorb the words. It's a mercy of God that he brings about good behavior in people who are outside his kingdom. Now, if he allowed mankind to act all out all the desires of their hearts, this world would be impossible to live in. There'd be widespread anarchy, uh, violence, depravity, murder, brutality, cannibalism. You know, it would be uh, it would be almost a satanic paradise, if you like. When we see love or kindness 
in the unconverted people of this world, that's your relatives and your friends, we should view them as examples of God's mercy. And no civilization or person has ever existed without displaying some virtues. If you name me any, any tyrant, any tyranny, any civilization in the whole of history, I can give you, I'm sure, examples of virtuous behavior in those people and those things. I recently finished a book, as some of you know, uh, I was chatting to some of you about this book, about Genghis Khan. So, if you want to say someone's like, you know, really wicked, you would say, you're, you're Genghis Khan, aren't you? You know, or Hitler or something, they use a name, don't we, like that. And, um, so although Genghis Khan has a reputation for savagery, the real man, Genghis Khan, he showed, he showed real concern for his family, for his community, for, even for people of other nations, not to mention animals and the environment. Ancient Greece, ancient Greece was notorious for things like sexual depravity, uh, you know, a lot of perversion going on, but that civilization gave us a lot of great thinkers like, you know, you've heard of Plato, haven't you, and Aristotle and people like that. And they also gave us the language that the Bible was written in. At the time when Paul lived, the virtues we're speaking about today, they were already part of the world's thinking. So uh, the, the, the list that Paul uses is quite similar to uh, lists of virtues used by the Greeks and the Romans. For all we know, he could have just took one of those lists and rewrote it. I'll tell you why uh, a bit. The difference is that Paul, like us, Paul, like us, knew Jesus Christ. And he expects our thinking to be elevated far above that than the people of this world. So, I said to you, firstly, we're going to consider the virtuous things that we're to think about, that Paul tells us, the virtuous things Paul tells us to think about. So you'll see the first one is whatever is true. Whatever is true. Whenever you see truth, you should be pleased by it. It could be a person who you know to be truthful. It could be some other source of information that has been shown to be only communicating truth. Where you see truth, you don't see dishonesty. Where you see truth, you don't see unreliability. And even among all the ancient heathen that we read about, there was an understanding that wherever God was, he must be all truth. And for us who genuinely know God, well, we see that he is a God of absolute truth. And to see truth in this world anyway is to see a reflection of the characteristics in the heavenlies. The next one on our list is whatever is honourable. 
noble, dignified, worthy of our respect. I'm not much of a monarchist anymore, I don't really have a strong opinion, but I just can't help being impressed by the British monarchy. It could be its fascinating history, I've just read a book about the Plantagenets, King John, King Henry, King Edward, and uh, it's, it's fascinating, and it could be I'm just biased, because I'm a Brit, and I just think that we do monarchy better than anyone else. But I think what impresses me most of all is that just the sheer majesty of it all, at particular times like, like recently with the, the death of the Queen, people's thoughts are quite naturally lifted up. They stop and they think about something beyond them. Their thoughts are raised above the mundane things for a short while. When the Queen's coffin was lying in Westminster Abbey, did, you, did anyone see that on television? Lying there, um, and there's a big queue, and people are filing past. A quarter of a million people stood in the queue. Can you, can you imagine that? A quarter of a million people formed a queue. <laughs> it's, it's, it's unbelievable. They just wanted to file past this coffin and, and show their respects. You had young girls, you had old soldiers, you had uh, people in wheelchairs, you had uh, young lads tattooed all over the place. You had male, you had female, you had black and white. And some spent an entire 24 hours standing in that queue, shuffling forward. 24 hours in that queue. Why? So they could bow their heads for a few seconds to honour Her Majesty. A person they didn't personally know. Well, that might not describe you. You might be anti-monarchist, I don't know. <laughs> but there is definitely, friends, some benefit in having majestic things in this world. Our, yeah, our highest thoughts will be always be present in us when we think about our great God, the majesty on high, the king of kings. I, I was speaking to, um, I was speaking to uh, Matt and only the other day about these things, and we both wondered whether the existence of such majesty on earth might exist as a sort of stepping stone for our thoughts. That is, as we set our thoughts on things higher than ourselves, it seems logical to gaze even higher to the kingly courts of heaven. Noble, dignified. Well, the next thing in our list is whatever is just. Whatever is just. Now, on previous occasions, I've described us being just as being declared completely righteous. Being, if you like, clothed in the righteousness of Christ himself. But the Bible uses the word just in other ways. So it uses it uh, to describe simply being good. 
And again, that word was in common use among all the, the ancient civilizations. The just man or woman makes for a good neighbor. That they are a model citizen. They uh, contribute to their societies being more civilized. Uh, and among the Jews, there's a philosopher guy called Philo, and he said that to being just was the best, the best of all virtues. To him, to, to be good was the cardinal virtue. To be just, you see, was to be conformed to the standards of God himself. High things, whatever is pure, comes next on the list. Whatever is pure, we all have an idea of what pure means, I think. Uh, it reminds us of things which are wholesome. Things which having, ha haven't been uh, contaminated with impurities. Paul encourages us to find people or things which are pure. And as we look at them or meditate on them, our hearts will be stirred. We'll appreciate the value of purity. We'll see how a God of all purity creates purity in this world so that we might see something of him in his creation. The next one on the list is whatever is lovely. Whatever is lovely. This, this word lovely has a, has a range of meanings. It means things which bring pleasure. Nice things. Things which naturally bring calm to the soul and quench anger. When the Jews decided they wanted their Bible, the, you know, the Old Testament, when the Jews wanted it translating into Greek, they chose this word lovely to describe the beauty of Queen Esther. So it describes beautiful things. What lovely things have you seen, my friends? What lovely things have you seen which have stirred your soul, which have lifted your soul up? Just remember, it's God who gives gifts to men. It's God who gives not just spiritual gifts, but he gives gifts to other people. Gifts in, you know, art, music, architecture. I mean, have you never felt amazed at some work of art? Have you never had your emotions stirred by a piece of music? Have you not been impressed by some magnificent cathedral? Who's the same guy? <laughs> by a magnificent cathedral? Well, maybe for you it's something else. Maybe for you it's something in the natural world. Maybe it's something in the natural world. Some lovely creature God's made. Some great landscape he's carved out. Perhaps, perhaps it's that young man or young woman who you met a long time ago who inwardly and outwardly were beautiful and they impressed you so much you went and married them. 
Maybe that's what it is for you. Loveliness. The next thing on our list is whatever is commendable. Whatever is commendable. It sounds like loveliness is mostly about visual appeal. And so we can think of being commendable as um, things that sound good. Some people have, have, have defined this as fair spoken or uh, fair sounding. This word could be translated uh, admirable. It's been translated here as commendable. The King James Bible says of good report. I think these translations are good. It refers to anything which is well spoken of. If someone recommended to, to me uh, some good book, I might go and, I might go and buy the book uh, and read it and be impressed and then recommend it to someone else. That's one of the ways that good Christian literature is, is, is distributed and made known. A fellow believer might uh, speak well of someone and tell you that someone of great integrity and in paying attention to such characters, you'll find that it will benefit your Christian walk. Now you might receive a recommendation about someone which ends up being very wide of the mark, but at least, at the very least, things or, pe things or people which are highly spoken of, we should, uh, we should at least consider them. Paul, Paul now rounds off this little section, verse 8. Paul rounds off this section by summing things up. He says, uh, in a nutshell, he said, whatever is excellent, whatever is praiseworthy, think about those things. He wants them to, he wants those things to distract us, to distract us from the cheapness of this world that we are immersed in every day. He, he, he wants them to, to prompt you to, to copy good behaviours, to, to remind you that, that to be more just or more pure is better than being less just and less pure. We've looked at the list of virtues then, and um, I want to now think about <clears throat> Jesus Christ as the very highest expression of those virtues. Jesus Christ is the very highest expression of these virtues. I said to you, didn't I, the words of Paul here, the very common at that time. I was reading a book recently um, written by one of the emperors of Imperial Rome. The emperor was called Marcus Aurelius. If you've seen the film Gladiator, a great film by the way, uh, the, the, the king at the beginning was Marcus Aurelius. He was no friend of Christians, I can tell you, but he was very religious. He belonged to a group called the Stoics, and he wrote this book just called Meditations. 
And it's full of the same type of language about being just and pure and so on. Okay. Now the apostle, it seems to me, seems to have chosen those words deliberately. I'm sure that the people he wrote to in the church of Philippi knew very well that Paul was deliberately ripping off the words in the culture of his day. And I'll, I'll offer some reasons why Paul might want to do that. Why might he want to take the measly thoughts of, you know, the local philosopher and encourage the Christians to think about those things? Well, at the most very basic level, he was encouraging Christians to look for God in the world around him, around them. Because it would prevent them becoming too cynical. It would prevent them from thinking, you know, the, the world and all its people, they're all, you know, absolute scum of the earth, don't want anything to do with them, they're, they're all completely bad. Um, and so by, by looking for little bits of good out there, they become better citizens. Also, in seeing these little glimmers of, uh, of a, a pure goodness around them, as far as it went, they'd be reminded that God was still at work in their world, preserving it from evil chaos by suppressing sin and introducing bits of goodness in it. Also, uh, as the Christians looked around them and saw things which were, were, were good and noble, it would be an encouragement to them to consider how they should exceed the world in all those virtues. They should be miles better. And in recommending that they raise their sights to better things, it would remind them that yes, the highest and most perfect expression of all these virtues was to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, <coughs> we know Paul. We know Paul, we know his doctrine. We know he never preached to sinners they should simply try to mend their ways. He would never preach to them, you need to turn over a new leaf. Definitely not. Paul was not a preacher of mere morality. Paul was a preacher of righteousness. This letter is full of exaltation of Christ. All his writings are like that. He even tells the people in the very next verse to pay attention to what he taught them about Christ. He's bringing Christ into it. This is where he's taking us. Our thoughts can be lifted up by considering admirable things in this world, but he wants us here to remember the very highest level of virtue talked about by all these philosophers is found in a person, one person only, and that is Jesus, who is the Christ. The Son of God, friends, is all truth. He speaks nothing but truth. He described himself as the truth. The truth. When we listen to the words he spoke on earth, when we listen to the words he inspired in the people who wrote this amazing book of ours, we have absolute confidence we're listening to the very truth of God himself. 
The Son of God is also all honourable. He is noble. He is a monarch above all others. Our Queen had all the trappings of her reign removed, stripped from her, before she was lowered into the grave. In life, this Queen of ours exceeded probably every monarch who had come before her in history, and yet in death she awaits the resurrection, if you like, in the queue, like everyone else, like every common man, like the very poorest of men. <coughs> Not Christ. The Son of God is all just. He is all just. He is perfect in righteousness. He is the standard by which all creatures are measured. The scriptures call him the holy and the just one. This is why sinful men and women are told that Christ is the righteous one who died for the unrighteous people. That's us. The Son of God is also all pure. The animals of the temple, which uh, would point to Christ, had to be without any blemish. Without blemish. The Ark of the Covenant, constructed to picture all manner of doctrines about Jesus, was covered inside and outside with gold of the highest purity. Nothing less was good enough to represent his spotlessness. The Son of God is all lovely. Now when he walked this earth, he looked outwardly like any other man. But inwardly, the beauty of the Godhead shone brightly. And having been resurrected, we now know he lives in a state of radiant beauty. The psalmist tells us, I can't remember which psalm, the psalmist tells us, I only want one thing, I want to live with God forever and look on his beauty. And then the Son of God is all commendable. He is to be admired. From the day of creation, men have spoken highly of him. The prophets commended him with great expectation. The apostles who walked with him on earth spoke about him as a man of the highest worth. The church since then its untold millions of members. The church has honoured him in their testimonies. Above all, God in heaven himself presented Jesus to the world as his beloved son in whom he took great pleasure. What a commendation. Excellence. Worthy of praise. Who else in the whole of creation, friends? Who else is more excellent and more worthy of praise than our beloved Saviour, Jesus? Now, for those of us, for those of us here who've received the truth, we do well to take time to consider, you know, people and things. Those things which, um, which transcend this existence of ours. Higher things, wherever we see them. But we never stop there. Our inward vision 
steepens and we behold the risen Christ. Now, I said I would finish by speaking about how these high thoughts are to affect us. How are these elevated thoughts about good things, even in unconverted people or things, how, how can they affect us? How are they meant to? Paul has spoken about meditating on higher things. Most especially, he would have you and me think about God the Son. But it was never God's purpose for us to exist, you know, in a state of blessedness, to just carry on through life and be happy in the Lord. It's, it's not quite enough. And Christians who have, Christians who have a keener understanding of doctrine or the work of Christ, um, they are perhaps more prone to this. They, they maybe grasp the nature of God a bit better than other people, and uh, if they do, it's a gift of God, but they can become complacent. Some of them will, will feel that they've, they've, um, they've grown as a Christian, they're on another plane now, another plane of Christian experience, and they can comfort themselves with those thoughts, and some of them will become lazy, lazy Christians. Paul now reminds the Philippians, the Philippian believers, uh, of their duty. All very high sounding language so far, but now he says, let's talk about your duty in verse 9. He says, all the stuff I've taught you, do it. Do it, he says. The way they learned from Paul was, was twofold. Well, firstly, obviously, he spoke to them directly, didn't he? Through words, you know, he preached. And then he taught the church with these letters, like this one. But it says again, Paul also taught the people indirectly by the way he lived. You'll see that in verse 9 at the end there, you'll see it says, um, the things that you saw in me, the things they'd seen in him. You might remember, I don't know, a few weeks ago, when we were in chapter 3, Paul unashamedly tells the believers to copy him. To copy him, he said in verse 17 of the previous chapter, he said, join in imitating me. Now, I explained at the time why he said that. Well, he not only repeats the idea of using him as an example to live by, but he mentions peace again. He mentions peace again. Now, last time, last week, we spoke about <laughs> we spoke about the peace of God in us. Now we're talking about the God of peace being with us. I'm not sure if that's clear or not, but what it comes down to is this. We can think of the peace of God as, as being um, like a gift which he drops down from heaven into our laps. And it, that's a good image, and the Bible, the Bible sometimes uses that, that imagery. But now it's described in another way. 
now that God to whom this peace belongs is said to be uh, with us, uh, standing right next to us, better still living in us now we still receive his peace but in this image he doesn't send this gift but he brings it personally whichever way we think of this the peace of God is most certainly available to us. Now, now, last time, you might remember that we spoke about how this peace becomes ours through prayer. Now, Paul says something else. He says, it also comes through obedience. So, our relationship with God actually improves the more we obey Him. Well, how do we obey him? How do we obey him? Well, you've got a big massive Bible there full of instruction to be getting on with, including things by Paul. But given what Paul has said here, we might start by being the very best examples of the virtues that Paul lists. So we're to be truthful people. We tell the truth. We are known for it. We love the truth wherever we find it. And we devote ourselves particularly to learning the truth which falls from the lips of God in this book, the Bible. We're also to be honourable people. We rule, friends, alongside Christ the King. We, we should think and act like it. In, in Paul's letters to his, his brethren, Timothy and Titus, he addresses the church leaders their, their wives and other people and in each instance he, he, got, he uh, exhorts them to be dignified we're also to be just people now I said our acceptance with God is through the righteousness of someone else through the righteousness of Jesus so it's given to us and it's because he is just that we are accepted most definitely but our lives are to be marked by righteous habits and thoughts we're also to be pure people when the bible says that we're to be unspotted from the world it's as if sin is some kind of contagious disease that has ravaged the planet and through our interactions with people we can become infected, if you like. We can get covered in spots and be spotty and spotted. And that rash represents sinfulness. So instead, we're to make sure we remain spotless in our behaviour and even in our very thoughts. We're also to be lovely people. Right? This has nothing to do with male grooming or female makeup just as it wasn't necessary for Jesus of Nazareth to be handsome so it is that our beauty is to be something within we're to reflect the beauty of God we're to become if you like walking advertisements for citizenship of God's kingdom and we're also to be 
commendable people. That is, as we go on in our Christian lives, people will be, like it or not, people will begin to form opinions of us. That's quite natural. And if we are in a close walk with God, people will notice it. We'll be well spoken of, uh, not just by the church. Now, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you'll never get widespread commendation from this world and won't be tidy if you ever do. But some will grudgingly acknowledge your honesty, your integrity, your consistency of life, your love today. Well, to the anxious soul, <coughs> we saw last week, to the anxious soul, Paul gave a very sweet gift of guidance. He exhorted the brethren to have an attitude of thankfulness and a strong habit of prayer. And now, as another avenue to enjoying the peace of God, he encourages us to elevate our thoughts to higher things, especially to Jesus Christ. And in doing this, we not only get to see more of the nature of God, but it inspires us to serve him. And it's in serving him that we're rewarded with greater closeness to him. Amen.